Well, good morning, church. It's good to continue this morning with you in the story of Joseph. And this morning, we're actually looking at the focus is really coming on his brothers. I remember as a kid getting into a fight once. Some of you are looking up now interested. Um, I think I was 11 or 12 with a friend of mine, and, and it was the sort of thing where uh, there was a, a bully who was 14, 15 in his little gang, and I decided I wasn't going to back down, and I think I might have actually taken the first swing, um, but it didn't end well for me. Uh, ended with a chipped tooth and uh, lectures from the dentist about, you know, not getting into fights and all that. Well, about a month later, that kid showed up at my front door to sell cookies or something for school, not realizing that's where I lived. And my mom recognized him, and so it was Mama Bear. So she actually invited him into the house. And I sat in the other room, and to be honest with you, I actually felt bad for the kid as I listened. She said, you're the boy who chipped my son's tooth. And uh, it kind of got into him a little bit. So the, 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 the narrative kind of switches. And as you heard this story, I wonder if anybody felt any empathy for these brothers of Joseph. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> You're like, no, these guys are scoundrels. They deserved what came. Well, you know, most of us, most of us carry some kind of guilt with us from the past. And, and it can be a heavy load. It can really weigh us down sometimes. Now, if, I just want to remind you, if you're in Christ, he has paid it all. And we're going we're gonna to end with that this morning, with that, that, that hope, that truth. But the truth is that if you could go down and rent a time machine, and if I could, we, you might be willing, I might be willing to pay some big bucks to go back and have a do-over, even if it was like for five minutes, if I could just not say that one thing that I said, right? That one thing I did, if I, if I could just a do-over, man, that, I would pay big bucks to change that. Well, other folks may need God's severe hand on them to bring them to a place of godly guilt for their sin. And, and, and so maybe you have a sensitive conscience. Others have hard consciences where they, they manage to compartmentalize that guilt away. But they actually need God to provide some tough love for them so that they can repent and, and get right with their maker. And that's what we see happening here in this chapter. To Joseph's ten brothers. That would be all but Benjamin. These would be the ten brothers that were Jacob's children through his wife Leah and his concubines Bilhah and Zilpah. Well, God had plans for these ten men's lives. You know, we need to remember God is just, but he is also a God of love. And the good news of the gospel is that God loves sinners like us. And we're going to come back to that here at the end of our message this morning. But God loved even these 10 brothers. And these men would become the patriarchs, the leaders of 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember that their dad, Jacob, his name became known as Israel. And, and so there were two other tribes that were the sons of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, who would end up being tribes. But 10 tribes were these 10 brothers who had done this thing to Joseph. And, and they were indeed, at this point in their lives, 
a spiritually sorry lot. Like if you just go back to the left a few chapters, we see in Genesis chapter 34 that Simeon and Levi had committed genocide against the Shechemites, a revenge killing for the dishonor of their sister. Instead of just dealing with the perpetrator, they had gone and and just tricked a bunch of men into being circumcised. And then as they were recovering and weak, they had just gone in and slaughtered them all. Uh, We could say disproportionate revenge. Um, Not a very pretty thing. Then you have firstborn Reuben in Genesis 35 committing incest with his father's concubine. And while that was a certainly a, a lustful thing, it was probably also a power play a little bit, trying to kind of take his dad's honor, maybe take his dad's position. Judah, in Genesis chapter 38, had been easily tricked by his daughter-in-law Tamar while she was posing as a prostitute into impregnating her. And that's just a sordid chapter uh, with a purpose for us to understand. Um, but, but that's Judah for you uh, at that point in his life. And then, of course, remember in Genesis 37 that all 10 of these men had beaten their little brother Joseph up, nearly killed him, and then they had sold him into slavery. So these men needed some tough love to bring them to a place of godly guilt so that they could repent and get right with God. And this is what we see happening in our text is, as God providentially uses Joseph to test them when they show up in Egypt to buy food during the famine. Now, a long time had passed. 20 years had passed, right? It's easy. 20 years may seem like a blink of an eye sometime. Um, Friday night, we were at the Rocky Bayou Christian School homecoming game, and they had a little tent and, and a thing for alumni, and we're, we're enjoying our barbecue, and my wife looked at me. She's shaking her head right now, like this isn't something that she wants me to say, probably, but she looked at me and said, uh, hey, what year did you graduate? Now, I'm trying, she's, actually, she said, how many years has it been since you graduated? And I was like, I don't know. Feels like just a few, just kind of yesterday, maybe a decade or two. And then we started counting, and I realized that was 31 years. It's been 31 years. And and without smiling or joking at all, she looked at me and said, You're old. (laughs) It was just like it dawned on her, and it dawned on me. Like, yeah, I guess so. I always thought of myself as a young guy, but I'm getting old. 31 years, boom. Well, 20 years had passed. 20 years had passed, and it seems like a long time, and Joseph had been through a lot. In some ways, it felt like, like ages, like a lifetime, right? If you think about, I mean, it was almost like he had gone to Mars or something, right? Shepherd growing up in Palestine, and now he'd become an Egyptian. I mean, a whole new life, right? Years in, in, in indentured servitude as a, as a slave who became powerful, then who got falsely accused, thrown in jail, years in jail, and then now for the last seven years, he's been running Egypt. So it probably felt like several lifetimes to him, and then suddenly one day, he sees his brothers. And it probably felt like just yesterday that they were back in Dothan, him getting beat up and abused by his own family members and sold into slavery. Well, they didn't recognize this powerful Egyptian viceroy who was overseeing the sale of food to, 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 to foreigners, but Joseph immediately recognized them. 
So we're going to just look at two, two points in the sermon today. Usually, you know, I go for the magic three. Sometimes it becomes four. This morning, we're just going to do two points. And, and the first is what godly guilt looked like in, in Joseph's brothers' lives. And then we're going to look at what does godly guilt look like in our own lives? So let's kind of look into this story here. And before we jump back into the text, I appreciate Billy reading all 38 verses for us this morning. Um, Before we do that, I do want to uh, address one issue here, and that is here we see Joseph messing with his brothers. All right, and we're going to see this for some time, actually. Um, this, this, This testing, as it were, is going to go from Genesis chapter 42 all the way through the, the big reveal in chapter 45 when he finally says to them, I am Joseph. So several chapters of these guys really getting messed with. So the question is, what's going on in Joseph's motivation here? Is this revenge? If so, that would not be a godly thing. And I would just submit to you that I don't believe his motivation here was ungodly. I don't believe his motivation was revenge. I think his motivation was truly examination. And and there's several reasons for that, but the the greatest would be this, that Joseph could have immediately um, dragged them out, humiliated them, and and just had them executed on the spot. Or he could have said, hey, you remember me? Uh, Let's see how you like being slaves. And off they get, you know, marched off into you know, the salt mines of Egypt or something, right? He had, he had all the power to do whatever he wanted with them. And that's not what we see happen here. Everything we see happening here is actually moving towards redemption with them. So th- th- there's also the fact that we see in chapter 45, when he makes the big reveal to them, we see a complete act on his part of forgiveness. And, and the reason Joseph was able to forgive his brothers for the, the wrong that they had done him was because he knew God. As Jesus tells us several thousand years later in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 6, people who know God, who have known his forgiveness, forgive others. And, and Joseph knew God. And so while things worked different then, we know that the Spirit of God was within Joseph. So I believe that is why Joseph was able to truly forgive his brothers, right? And and finally, Joseph really did have a legitimate need to interrogate these men before revealing his identity to them. There were some things he needed to know about where they were. He needed to know who were these men now, 20 years after this thing they had done to him in Dothan. What what have they done to my brother Benjamin? Is, is Benjamin really alive? Joseph needed to know that, right? I mean, his, his affections would have been strong for his younger brother. They were the only two sons of, of Rachel. And, and so how, 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 did he, how would he know that these men hadn't done the same thing to Benjamin? Uh, certainly their father wasn't doing any of them any favors by, favor, by, by being such a, a favoritist towards Joseph first and then Benjamin, as we see in this text. So Joseph needed to kind of ascertain that. And, and is his father really alive? What is the character of these men now, 20 years after this dastardly deed? Do they feel remorse for what they've done? Do they even have something that we might call godly guilt? So I wonder if Joseph 
during his years administrating Egypt, if he had prepared for this day, or if he was totally shocked when he saw them, and he just made this stuff up as he went along. And, and to be honest with you, I, I, I think the latter. Okay, I think Joseph was making this up as he went along, but I could be wrong on that. So let's look at verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Now this is certainly not something they would have enjoyed doing, bowing before a powerful Egyptian. But necessity is the mother of all kinds of things, even humility sometimes. So they saw a young, powerful, well-dressed Egyptian. And again, they had no idea, no idea this man was their younger brother, Joseph. In fact, if you think about it from their perspective, and maybe even Joseph's, what were the odds that they would ever cross paths? Okay, um, the, the fact is, as, as far as they knew, Joseph was either dead by now, or he was working as a slave in obscurity in some low-level household somewhere in, in Egypt. And from Joseph's side, uh, if you think about all the world, all the people who had been coming into the courts to, to buy food, what are the odds that he would have actually one day looked out there and seen his own, his own brothers? Well, in verse 7, we, we read, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. He said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. That's like an idiom for you've come to look for uh, the defenses and the weaknesses, maybe for an invasion, maybe take advantage of us while we're, while we're down a little bit here. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Now, what we see going on here, and uh, some of you guys in the military, some of you guys with backgrounds, um, or or ladies maybe even, uh, may recognize this as a common interrogation technique, okay? Uh, That would be, you keep just repeating the same question or accusation, right? And so the guilty often crumble, or at least give a tell, or just start talking, because you just keep asking the same question or making the same charge. So Joseph does here. So in verse 12, he said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. Now here we see the first glimmer of, of guilt in the brothers. So notice that in their response of who they were, they actually thought of Joseph. 20 years had gone by, but he came to their minds, right? First glimmer of guilt in verse 13. And they said, We are your servants. 12 brothers. They didn't say 11 brothers. They could have said 10, those of us who are here. No, they said 12 brothers. They spoke the truth. 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. Verse 14, but Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and, and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else 
by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Well, we might think, man, that's harsh. You know, just toss them in jail for three days. Well, bear in mind where Joseph has been, three days in jail is no big deal, right? I mean, it's been years in the pit. They can handle it. You know, a little bit of tough love. Maybe you've told your kid this before. That which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So it's not necessarily vindictiveness, but he's going to let them sweat for a little bit, right? But interestingly, after three days, Joseph softens up. And, and this is one of the reasons, I think, that he was making this up as he went along, okay? And so instead of keeping all of them bound, except for one, until he brought Benjamin back, he, he changes course with the testing. So look at verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine for your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. So with a little more time to think through things, Joseph probably considered that their families, as well as his own father and younger brother Benjamin, could be in a really bad situation, maybe even starving to death, right? And they needed grain quickly. So he changed course, decided let's send most of them back with food and keep one behind. And in this, Joseph also revealed to him that he was a follower of the one true God. Now, this must have blown their minds because Egyptians believed in many gods, but right now their heads are already spinning. They're, they just had too much to try to take in here. And so we, we read, they did so. They chose a brother. We're going to see Simeon was the one who was chosen to be bound and to remain. Frankly, they might have all preferred to stay bound and remain than have to go back and face their dad and say, Benjamin needs to come back with us. That would not have been an easy assignment, all right? And so now here we see, now that they've kind of been brought down low, that the hand of God has been heavy on them, we see their guilt coming out clearly when they, when they realize the terrible predicament they're in. So look at verse 21. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. So it's interesting how vivid their memory was from 20 years ago, from this thing they had done. And Reuben answered them, didn't I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen. So there now comes a reckoning for his blood. So we see some blame shifting going on. Although Reuben is, is right, Reuben had tried to save Joseph. They had been compartmentalizing this guilt for, for years, but we see here that, that those pleas from Joseph in the pit, and, and likely as, as he was bound, beaten, being dragged off, those, those pleas had, had plagued their souls over the years. Now, now, thinking about Joseph for a moment, notice that, that Joseph isn't standing back enjoying their pain, okay? You don't see a cold, calculating man here. This is deeply emotional for him, but he is on a mission towards truth-finding and towards, hopefully, reconciliation. So look at verse 23. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them, 
Then he turned away from them and wept. Some, some people think that he, he wept for the pain that he saw his brothers going through. Um, others think that he, he wept just because of the, the memories of what happened to him. I think maybe all of the above. This was a hard, highly charged emotional time for him. And so he wept and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Joseph needed to find out if these men had changed. Would they leave Simeon and forget about him like they had him? Did their faces show any grief as Simeon was bound? Had God changed their character over these last 20 years? Would they be loyal to Simeon unlike how they had been loyal to him? Early church father Christostom wrote, See how Joseph takes every means of putting fear into them, so that on seeing Simeon's bonds, they may reveal whether they manifested any sympathy for their brother. You see, everything he does is to test their attitude out of his wish to discover if they had been like that in dealing with Benjamin. Hence, Joseph also had Simeon bound in front of them to test them carefully and see if they showed any signs of affection for him. I think Christosom may, may be right in that. That Joseph is, again, trying to determine, trying to figure out not only the character of these brothers, but is his brother Benjamin really alive? And when you read this story, I, the more I read this, I just think, you know, you can't make this stuff up, okay? It's just so authentic and, and real. And, and I wonder if, as, 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 as he was bound, I wonder if God broke Simeon's heart with a memory of how he and his brothers had done that very thing to Joseph, how they had bound him. 20 years before, weeping, wounded, and just sold him to the slavers and watched him get dragged behind the camel um, across the desert. Well, we read in verse 25, and Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Now this, this too was a test. So Joseph now in, in hiding their money in their grain is really raising the stakes, all right? So now he's, he's trying to find out, what are these guys going to do? Are they going to just keep the money, you know, say score and, and, and leave Simeon behind forever? Or will they come back and, and beg for forgiveness? So verse 26, we, we, we read, then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money's been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? Now, interestingly enough, this is the very first time in the entire story that we hear these men mention the name of God. They recognized that God is sovereign and just, and that they were guilty sinners. And when they made it home to their, their father Jacob, he was glad to see the food, and he was distressed to notice that Simeon wasn't among them. And they, they recounted their experiences with this viceroy in Egypt. And then they unloaded their, their donkeys, and then we read in verse 35, as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. Joseph was not being easy on them. It may have looked to their dad, maybe to their extended families, 
could have looked that they had sold Simeon for cash, just as they had done to Joseph. You see, you kind of see the, the genius of maybe what Joseph's doing to these guys uh, at this point. Uh, had, they, had they grown? Here, here are the questions. Had they grown in their integrity? Would they bring that money back to Egypt, along with Benjamin, to, to ransom their brother Simeon? Had they changed? We actually see guilt in Joseph's brother's hearts that I believe eventually did lead to repentance and reconciliation. We're going to see that later in their interactions with Joseph, some in, in chapter 45, but also at the very end of the book, uh, the very last chapter of Genesis. But Jacob's immediate and selfish instinct here, the father, is to protect his now favorite son, Benjamin. So look at verse 36. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Now, it's interesting here to me that he seems to know that the brothers carry some guilt for the loss of Joseph. How much he understood, uh, we don't know. But somehow he actually blamed them for, for Joseph's disappearance. And then he says, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben who now is actually, in his own mind, trying to be noble, although this sounds crazy. But he said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Um, you got to just kind of love the Old Testament here a little bit. Um, you know, the kind of oaths people make, right? You know, yeah, I'll take out a knife and kill your grandkids. You have my permission if I don't make it back. You know, I swear by their lives. You know, you say that kind of stuff today and you get carted off to jail. But I think this was considered noble in his mind, at least, okay? But Jacob responded, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. I'm sure everybody else is thinking, thanks, dad, right? So he says, if harm should happen to him on the journey that you were to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. In other words, I care a lot more about Benjamin than I do you lot. Your lot. Total favoritism here, right? Uh, and again, what we see here in the, is just the authenticity of Scripture. It shares the good, the bad, the ugly. Uh, there's only one hero in the Bible. That's Jesus Christ, right? Um, and what a great Savior we have. And, uh, and He is our hope. And so we're going to remember that as we consider our second point this morning. What does godly guilt look like in our lives today? We've, we've seen how... God's hand of providence, his, his severe hand, uh, was working in these 10 brothers' lives, bringing them to a place of humility, bringing them to a place of guilt that could lead to repentance. What does godly guilt look like today to us? Well, first of all, our society does not like guilt. We, we'd rather convince ourselves that guilt is simply a destructive neurosis that paralyzes healthy self-image and, and healthy development of our children. Guilt was simply invented by powerful oppressors to ensure their control of the civilized order. That's what the modern psychologist wants to say. So don't feel guilty. You know, uh, it's not your fault, whatever you did. It's somebody else's fault. Blame shift, right? But you know what? We still feel guilty, do we not? And so we try to explain it away or blame somebody else or make excuses or maybe distract 
And so we, we try to go out there and cover our guilt by buying something or drowning it out with entertainment or maybe even achievement. You know, in the back of our minds, if we could just, you know, do more on the, on the, on the good side of that scale, eventually we'll outdo that, that thing that we did that we can't quite forget. Well, guilt isn't pleasant, but it is powerful when it is used by God in a sinner's life. Fellow man-stealer and slave trader John Newton wrote, and you think about his life as a Christian post-salvation, do you think he struggled with guilt for the things that he did, for the things that he remembered? People whose lives he ended on his slave ships? He wrote, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Let's start, th- stop and think about that for a moment, right? Fear is closely associated with, with guilt. Fear who? It was God's grace that taught his heart to fear God. It was God's grace that gave him that recognition of his sin and, and of his wickedness, of his guilt, so that the next line of his song could happen. And, and grace, my fears relieved. What kinds of fears? Fears of justice. Fears of hell. It was God's grace that his fears were relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Without godly guilt, how much appreciation is there for his grace? Sadly, we have way too much cheap, cheap grace being preached in the pulpits in our country right, and on the radio stations and the self-help books we read with Christian labels on them, uh, and in our own minds and words. God uses godly guilt, or you could say fear or grief, to bring sinners like us to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas Worldly grief produces death. Well, let's just think for a moment here about the difference between godly guilt and worldly guilt. Because we all deal with guilt. So, so what kind of guilt are you dealing with? What are you looking at here? Is it godly guilt or is it worldly guilt? Well, well godly guilt leads us to repentance and reconciliation with God and with others that we've hurt. And that's through Faith in Jesus Christ at the end of the day, looking to him, our great savior. But worldly guilt does the opposite. It is guilt that does not lead to repentance or reconciliation, but simply produces shame and often withdrawal and, and isolation and, and even death. You know, like, what do you mean by that? Well, for, it can be soul death, but oftentimes even things like suicide are the results of worldly guilt. Consider the example of Peter. When he denied Christ, imagine that, promising, I'll go to my death for you, and then finding yourself, because of your fear of man, denying Christ, and Jesus actually looking straight at him. Having prophesied that that would happen, imagine what went through Peter's heart and mind. And yet, Peter showed a godly guilt. It led to repentance. It led to reconciliation with Jesus. And I can tell you, after Jesus by the lake, by the seaside, um, restored Peter and said, feed my sheep. 
man, Peter was off. You couldn't stop Peter. I mean, they, they ended up having to crucify him upside down, as legend tells us, in Rome. That's, that's the way they were able to finally stop Peter. Uh, he was faithful to the end. Well, cons- consider Judas. Did Judas feel guilt after he betrayed Jesus? He did. But it was a worldly guilt. Instead of repenting and coming back to his Savior, he went out and committed suicide. So godly guilt versus worldly guilt. Does it lead to repentance? Does it lead you to look to Jesus? Or do you try in other ways to cover it and to make it up, right? Compartmentalize it until you do something crazy. Well, don't try to sweep your guilt under the rug. The first thing to do is to recognize it, own it, and then simply bring it to Jesus because we have a great Savior. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us and that while we are sinners, Christ died for us. He paid a great price to to free us from the guilt of our sins. Nothing that you could do, nothing good that you could stack on the scale over here could in any way come near to the merit of the blood of Jesus Christ, right? So you, you don't need penance. You don't need to, 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 to wait days or, or weeks or, or months before God will smile on you again if you come to Christ after your sin, right? He looks at Christ and he says, covered. Colossians 2.13 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh— God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Maybe you remember the song, the old camp song, that says he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, the whole day long. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. So we need to look to Christ. I want to I call you, if, if you don't know him, if you have never truly just bowed your knee before him and, and, and asked him to, and, and owned your sin and told him you were guilty and you were sorry and asked Jesus Christ to, to forgive you and, and believe that he died in your place and he rose from the dead, you've never done that, I I urge you to do that today. Today could be the day of salvation for you. Today could be the day that you walk free, free of that weight that's been on your back, free knowing that, that if you died today, you would end up in glory in heaven. Not because you deserve it, but because Jesus did, and he took your sin, and God actually will put on you his righteousness. But maybe you're, maybe you did that years ago, maybe. Maybe you've been walking with him but, but it's not necessarily a straight line up. You know, it's like the stock market. Or maybe, maybe it's worse. Maybe it's kind of like this all over the place, right? Which is probably more what the picture of sanctification really looks like um, than the stock market, okay? And, and, and maybe you have failed along the way as a Christian. Maybe it was this week, and, and you just feel like you got to carry that rock of that, that weight, that, that backpack full of guilt a little bit longer because, man, you, you blew it. Look to the cross, Christian. Look to him. You don't need to carry that guilt. Look, look to Jesus and say thank you. And, and believe that God is smiling on you today because of Christ's worthy sacrifice. Some people struggle with false guilt. 
And what do I mean by that? Well, some people have very sensitive consciences, and this might be you. Um, I think I've been on both sides of this one, to be honest with you. Uh, not being guilty enough, you know, being too good at compartmentalizing my sin. But other times I've been maybe too sensitive and, and actually um, just felt guilty for things I hadn't even done that were actually sins, right? Maybe somebody, I, I sense disappointment in me, and, and I, I just start carrying guilt when I don't need to. And, and so if that's you, uh, if you're not sure whether you really have, have sinned or not on something, I would say just look to Jesus. Um, he covered it all, whether you're guilty or not, okay? Trust the Holy Spirit to, to, to show you when there are sins in your life that you really do need to repent from. I, I often think of, of Paul when he, when he writes Romans 7. That seems like him, right? Um, some people think, well, that can't really be Paul. Yeah, it is. It was Paul looking in the mirror on a, on a you know, it, just kind of navel-gazing. If, if you, if, you know, just, he just can't, he just is so frustrated with himself because he, he can't achieve God's righteousness on his own. And the more introspective he gets, the more he just kind of spirals down. And so then in Romans 8, after crying out at the end of Romans 7, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of, of sin? He looks up. And he reckoned, he just sees God's grace, and he sees God's spirit, and he, and he looks to the Lord and, and, and just cries out victory in, in Jesus. And, and Romans 8 is all about the Holy Spirit's presence and, and power, such that he can, he can say, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, right? So I would say to you, whether, whether, whether there's just some sinful habits in your life that you keep falling into, and man, you just feel like you need to beat yourself up for a while before you can even look to the cross, or whether you're walking around just kind of navel-gazing and always just feeling like, man, no matter what, I'm not sure that what I say is ever 100% true, you know, and I'm not sure my motivation is ever 100% pure, if that's you, and you're just like, man, I just can't stop sinning, and you're frustrated with yourself, doesn't matter. Either side, look to the cross, look to Christ. Trust God's Spirit to shine a light on your sin, and when He does, just confess it to Him, and then be free, and live in freedom. 1 John 1 says, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So maybe you know that you're depraved. Maybe you are dealing with guilt and shame right now. The promise is, he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Maybe you're just frustrated because you can't ever seem to get it right completely, 100%. Well, guess what? He has cleansed you from all unrighteousness. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Clean, pure indeed. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You might not feel like it, but if God says you are clean, you are clean indeed. And this is good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your severe hand of mercy on us. 
Thank you that you don't just let us go. Thank you that you send your spirit to convict us of sin. And Lord, we thank you for the great Savior we have, Jesus Christ, who offered his own lifeblood up for us to cover our sins, to to make us truly pure before you. And Lord, we thank you for the, the justification and sanctification that we have in Christ, the fact that you have declared us holy and you have set us aside and truly made us righteous, giving us the very righteousness of Christ as a gift. Thank you that you smile on us. Help us to smile back this week. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.